taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We come this morning to the record of the early church of Jesus Christ concerning the persons Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And beloved, there are at least 17 sermons in these 11 verses. There's indeed a sermon in here on marriage, isn't there? At our men's breakfast yesterday morning, the question was asked, what duty does a man have in the protection of his wife? Well, we could learn the answer to that question in Genesis chapter 3, couldn't we? The duty of a man to his wife to see her as a member of the body of Christ is to drive the serpent out of the garden, to drive the devil out of his heart, to drive the devil out of his house. That's the duty of a man to his wife. And what is a wife's duty? To not follow a man into sin. To not be bound by the relation of marriage as an excuse for sin, but to look to the higher relation of her to Christ, to withstand even her husband if needed, and come to the church and tell the truth and ask for mercy and help. There's so many lessons in this text. I won't be returning to the ones I just mentioned. Read this with me. Listen carefully. And then even later today, pray for the Lord to bless you in the reading. Let us read and then we'll pray. Acts 5, verse 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold the piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that upon the public reading of your word and its preaching now, that you would attend graciously to it. Father, open our ears 
grant us to hear, to hear this as it is, the very word of God. And Father, we pray that hearing we would believe, and that believing we would indeed be reformed, we would indeed be changed, that we indeed, Lord, would be straightened in the way of holiness for love of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask for such blessings, Lord, not according to our deserving, but according to the great mercy and love that has given us the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Great fear, verse 11 says. Great fear. It is not something we often think of as evidence of a healthy church. Would it be on your list? I have not found it in many books about church renewal. Great fear. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Was this great fear healthy for the church in Jerusalem? Yes, of course it was. Verses 12 through 16 immediately describe the great strength that came to the church through the great fear that had fallen upon her. It reads, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Do you see the health, quite literally, that broke out in the church after the great fear? Two have fallen dead on the same day, and like seeds in the ground in honor of the Lord's justice, a crop of healed bodies now fills the streets of Jerusalem. Even people wanting the shadow of Peter to fall upon their ill family members. This great fear was healthy for the church of Jesus Christ. Great fear did not weaken the church. It is necessary for the churches of Jesus Christ. We should be much more troubled when we see churches working hard to keep this kind of fear away from the people of God. This fear belongs to the people of God. You can't be saved without it, do you know? Isn't that why you've come to Christ? Because the great fear of God's wrath and judgment has shone finally, wonderfully into your soul, and you've discovered who you are before God, you realize that you are under great danger, and you ran into the high tower of the cross. You've been saved by this great fear. If you have not feared the Lord and sought 
safety from his wrath, and the storm of his coming judgment, the door to the tower is open still. But you cannot come to Jesus without knowing why he is there, why he looms large and high as a shelter from the storm. Great fear is good and necessary for the churches. Beloved, Jesus Christ sends fear to testify to us that he, the risen Christ, is present among us in power and authority and salvation. He's not just present among us in judgment. No, this great fear is given to the church to lead to their salvation, that many would come to the apostles and ask to hear of the Savior. His kingdom is upon us. And he testifies to it by the fear he sets upon us. And sometimes his kingdom presses down hard, presses hard for our salvation so that we do not end up condemned along with the world. Isn't that exactly what Paul said to the worldly church at Corinth? Because they kept corrupting the worship of God in that church, Paul said to them, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, he went on, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32. A proper fear of God belongs upon the church of God. It is one of her privileges because through it, Christ is delivering all of his elect from the condemnation that is coming upon the world. So you will never see the apostles trying to keep the fear of God away from the people of God. For it is indeed an instrument of God's salvation. Now in our text this morning, the apostle Peter is not embarrassed about what has happened to Ananias and Sapphira. You shouldn't be embarrassed either. Peter does not get up, quit his apostleship, and walk off in disgust after Ananias has fallen dead. No, Peter stays right there in his seat. He waits for three hours for Sapphira to arrive. He then administers a second time in one day the severe judgments of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is not ashamed of the risen Christ's rule and power in his church. Peter is not ashamed that the age to come has arrived in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is no other better kingdom to which Peter wishes to flee and take shelter in. Jesus alone rules the kingdom of salvation. Jesus alone has the key of David. Revelation 1 says, Jesus alone opens the door that no one will shut, and he alone shuts the door that no one will open. So Peter stays put. He serves his king, and in doing so, the rule of Christ from his heavenly throne appears on the earth 
in the government of the church. I really appreciate what John Calvin said about this text. He said, here we see the Lord Jesus himself confirming church government. Beloved, if you have been in this church for a few years, you understand that with tears and much prayer and great anguish, we have had to put out three or four people because they denied the Holy Trinity, they denied the rule of Christ by his word. We had to put them out of the church through a careful process of discipline. Why did we do that? Because we love doing those things? Of course not. We did those things because the Lord Jesus Christ, in his heavenly session, which he sits in right now, lives to rule in his kingdom on the earth through church government. It doesn't mean that church government always gets it right. The apostles got it right. We must cling to the teaching of the apostles. But the Lord does this even in our midst so that a godly fear would fall upon us and we would not think it a little thing to stand against Christ. <clears throat> now, before we look any more at the details of this text, I want to work out one more thing about the big picture of the text, and that is this. You, are, you will only appreciate what happened here with the death of Ananias and Sapphira when you understand what the church is. You will only appreciate what has happened here when you understand what the church is. Your spirit will only be able to join this Jerusalem church in great fear if your faith is clear on what the church is. In other words, your spirit will resist. Your spirit will back away from this good and proper fear unless you understand what the church really is before God. What is the church? It appears this word church for the first time in the book of Acts in verse 11 of our reading. And then it will be used 27 times by the end of the book. What is this church? The church is the body of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. He is her holy head, enthroned in heaven, which means the body, though on earth, finds its true nature in the heavenly holiness of her head. As Savior of the church, Christ was crucified for our sins, and by his resurrection, he makes us new in his heavenly likeness. He changes us, right? He converts us. He forgives us. He makes us holy and heavenly and not earthly. He makes us holy and heavenly as he himself is holy and heavenly. He has begun this. He will finish this. What is it then to deliberately and willfully add something impure to the church? It is to care very little for the holiness of Christ, the holy head of the holy temple body. To deliberately and willfully add something impure to the church like Ananias and Sapphira did 
is to want the church to be something other than what Christ has made the church to be. If we don't care if the church is holy, then we don't care if Christ is holy. And if we don't care that Christ is holy, then we really don't want salvation from sin and death and the wrath of God. And so we will remain under the curse of sin and death and the wrath of God. Here's how the Apostle Paul explained this again to the Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. Some people think the church is just an earthly social organization of the present age. Therefore, they think it doesn't really matter how they live in the church. They think if the world approves of them, the church should also approve of them. Because to them, the church is just, well, it's just another social organization that's there for them to get whatever they want out of it, whenever they want to get it. Now, what if the apostles had adopted that same worldly mindset about the church? Well, they would have said something like this. Hey, we're going to make Jesus easy We're going to make Jesus light. We're going to make Jesus familiar. We're going to market him to keep people comfortable. We're going to give people a down-to-earth Jesus for this present age, not a holy, heavenly Jesus for the age to come. No, we don't want people to think Christ's kingdom is so different from the way they have already been living. We're going to keep it light. We don't want people thinking They have to be crucified to the world to enter the kingdom of Christ. But Paul says you must be crucified to the world to enter the kingdom of Christ. And the world must be crucified to you, Galatians 2.20. The apostles never embraced that kind of foolishness. Listen again to the apostle Paul as he tells Timothy how to govern church life. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. That is 1 Timothy 5, 20 and 21. Did you hear how the apostles understand what the church is? In the church, the kingdom has come upon you. In the church, you are in the presence of God Most High. Not just when you're at church, but because you are a member of the body of Christ. You are in the presence of God Most High, reconciled to him by the blood of Christ. You do not belong to the world. By his death and resurrection, you have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6. 
as the baptized church of Christ, you now bear God's name and live in God's presence and in the presence of the elect angels. You belong to the age to come, the age of holiness, the age of godliness. This is what the church is. It is something God has created. This is why the apostles are never ashamed of the fear of God, neither should you be. We welcome whatever keeps us from returning to the world, which is going to be condemned at the appearing of Christ. Now, moving from the big picture to the small picture of our text. We notice something in our text right away that, in fact, helps us understand again what the church is, even as we bring in the focus of the camera. There's something very familiar about the opening three verses of our passage. We notice there's a man and his wife and Satan, and the three of them together conspire to establish a kingdom where good and evil will not be what God says it is, but what they say it is. Why does this sound familiar? What does this remind you of? Well, it's a reminder of Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. The first couple falling under the sway and temptation of the murderer, the liar, from the beginning. Satan, remember, came to Adam and Eve, and he urged them to put the Lord to the test. In our text today, Peter says, why have you tested the Lord? Satan came to the first couple and urged them to put the Lord to the test. He suggested to them in several ways that God was not really serious about his holy commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan even suggested that God would not follow through on the judgment, he said, would fall on those who disobey. Satan then made disobedience attractive. He said, if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 5. So Satan sold Adam and Eve the same lie he's now selling to Ananias and his wife Sapphira. He persuaded them that they could establish their own religious kingdom where they would decide what was good and what was evil and God would somehow cooperate with them. That's the lie. I read this passage in family worship and my dear wife asked a great question. Why does Ananias and Sapphira even want to be in the church? Why not go swindle people somewhere else? This is the, a strange thing. Well, beloved, they are actually wanting eternal life while keeping a life of sin. They want a new religion that God will cooperate with. They came to believe they could have both eternal life and a life of moral autonomy, a life where they would be a law unto themselves, where sin would not be sin unless they said so. Satan tempted them to desire a life where they would not have to take God's word for it on what was good and evil. 
why did God raise up Ananias and Sapphira in this way? He raised them up for the same reason he raised up Pharaoh. He allowed this couple to enter into the environs of the church just like he allowed Judas to enter into the environs of the church. He allowed this couple to harden until this very day of judgment when they fell dead to give to his church, his elect church, what they will greatly benefit from, godly fear that will stir in them the graces of the Spirit to fight against sin in their own heart and to resist the devil in their own heart and to cling closer to the Lord in their own life and their own obedience and worship. This is why the Lord raised up Ananias and Sapphira this way, to work through their judgment to give a blessing to his elect church. The Lord had already demonstrated his unwavering commitment to the holiness of his people. Long ago, when he brought his people out of Egypt on the Exodus, he brought them to the promised land. And who was his leader? Joshua. Well, there's there's something that that Joshua has to do with our passage today. In Joshua chapter 7, it reads this way. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. He took some of the things that belonged to the Lord, that the Lord was going to pour out his wrath upon. Achan saw them and thought, wealth, retirement, protection, preservation, and he hid them under his tent. Do you remember this? But in Joshua 7.1, when it says he took them, when that gets translated into the Greek Old Testament, it's the same word used twice in our text today to describe what Ananias and Sapphira did when they kept back for themselves. They kept back for themselves. It's rather a simple Greek word, but rarely used in the Bible. It's used once in the Pauline epistles, and it's translated as stealing. Many commentators think Peter is deliberately using it here to make a connection between what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira in Jerusalem and what happened with Achan. You see, as Achan was part of the church as it moved towards the promised land, which was a promised land of type, not of fulfillment, Achan was allowed to rise up so God would teach his people that there would be no quarter for unholiness and wickedness in the new creation, which was typified by the land of Israel. And now that Christ has brought the fulfillment of all the promises, that he has brought his people into the true heavenly country, the Lord is allowing Ananias and Sapphira to be raised up in wickedness and judged before the church to teach all the church that the church is a heavenly, holy society, that wickedness and scheming and cheating and adultery and stealing and theft and coveting and idolatry and infidelity, these will not be part of the church of God. We are holy people because we 
are a holy body united to a holy head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the technical details of Ananias and Sapphira's sin are somewhat simple and not too technical at all. They had a piece of property. Let's assign a value to it to help our exposition. They had a piece of property that Peter tells them that they didn't have to sell. There was not a religious rule in the early church or even in the church today that people have to sell certain amounts of their property each year or once in their lifetime or once during their church membership. There is no such rule. And Peter presses the point with Ananias. Before it was sold, Peter, it was yours to do with as you pleased. But Peter went and sold it. What Peter did, he sold the land for, say, $100,000, but he came and told the church that he had sold it for 50000 and he's giving all of the sale proceeds to the church. What a great guy. What a champion. Perhaps even Ananias had seen that Barnabas, who's mentioned at the bottom of the previous chapter, who also sold property and was commended for it, perhaps Ananias has got a competitive spirit. So he says he is giving more to the church than he really has gained. He lies about the value of his property. But Peter says you didn't have to sell it, and after you sold it, you didn't have to tell us at all what the value was. But you did this, Ananias, because you wanted what? He wanted the approval of men. His insincere worship was for the applause of men in the church. And of course, this is a striking, penetrating lesson to us about the sin of insincerity. Beloved, we all suffer from the sin of insincerity in the worship of God. When we come before the Lord God on the Lord's Day, and we're standing and singing our hymns, and we spend two stanzas of the hymn thinking about changing the oil in the lawnmower, but our mouth is moving and a sound is coming out, we are falsifying our holiness. When we come to church and we have strife with our brother, with our sister, with our spouse, and we don't care to end it, we don't care to suffer and sacrifice and forgive, and we come to church anyway and sing the hymns, we are on the continuum with Ananias and Sapphira. We are bringing insincerity, feigning holiness. How do we deal with such insincerity? I will tell you this morning, you will not put an end to it. It will creep back into your heart and mind even when you are 85 and have been a Christian for 50 years. I will tell you how you defeat it the best you can. You own it. You confess it. You come to church already aware and ready to admit to God that you are a weak, polluted worshiper. And when you catch your mind wandering in worship and still want people to think that you are godly, 
Though in your mind, you're actually thinking about how ugly that outfit is on that person two rows in front of you. Or how disgusted you are with their children. And you don't catch yet in your heart that this is so offensive to God that you would bring this anger before him while you're singing. You own it. You confess it to him, even in the service of worship. There is nothing more pleasing to the Lord than a people who are worshiping him and clinging to the lamb who was slain for their sins. Truly knowing by faith and in the spirit that they are approaching God only by the mercies of Christ crucified. Now, there's something different, though, about Ananias and Sapphira. Insincerity, fake worship, was part of their great sin, but it was not the only part. The deeper root for Ananias and Sapphira is idolatry and rebellion and infidelity and unbelief that comes with idolatry. They want God to be a different God than he is. They want a God who will not take sin seriously. Do not underestimate the depth of that evil. They just want a God who is not the God who is. So we are all insincere in our worship at times, but we are not all stiff-necked idolaters in the worship of God, which means Satan has not filled our hearts because we are guarded and we are defended by the Savior who has brought us to the true and living God. We know our minds have drifted at times to earthly concerns. We even know that at times our minds have become judgmental of others during worship. We know this. We know we deserve to die even for this. But by God's grace, we experience the ministrations of the Holy Spirit where we grieve even over that in the midst and presence of God, and when we leave the presence of God, and we confess our sins. And that is a testimony that we know who God is, that he doesn't tolerate our sin. How do we know that? He's he's given us his son and his spirit. Now, I have a question about our text that I think might be helpful to answer. Why didn't Peter give Ananias and Sapphira the ministry of correction? Why didn't he just give them the ministry of rebuke? Why did he give them the ministry of death? We could easily avoid this question and just say, well, Peter didn't know what the Lord was going to do with them. Peter certainly knew what the Lord was going to do with Sapphira. And he didn't tell her where her husband was. I admit it is a strange and a fascinating thing that Peter does not give Sapphira the opportunity to benefit from her husband's death, especially when that is the major point of this whole incident, that the church benefits from the news of the sudden death of this husband and wife. But Peter does not let Sapphira benefit from it. The text says that she came in and did not know what had happened. And Peter does not give her the information. 
What would she have done if she knew her husband was already dead and buried? We will never know. Has Peter erred as a pastor? Certainly not. I say he has not erred for two reasons. First, Peter very well may have been leaving this matter completely up to providence. He did not know if she had heard about it, because our text says in verse 5 that many people had heard about it, about the first death, Ananias. Peter didn't inquire whether she had heard or not. He stuck to the matter at hand, her own complicit sin in the scheme. But there's a second reason I am confident that Peter did not inform her of this, and we learn this from all of Scripture and the way the Lord's judgments fall. Peter knew that she would not respond to correction and rebuke. She had reached the peak and finish line of her hardness against God. Peter knew that she had already had the benefit of seeing and hearing many wonders and signs and the preaching of the gospel, the healing of the lame man that everybody knew. She had been blessed with all these wonderful graces and had hardened herself against grace. And to harden yourself against grace, well, there's nothing else but grace. Peter knew nothing would help her. She is really like the rich man's brothers that our Lord tells us about. A rich man died and went to hell. And in his torment, he pleaded with Abraham to have Abraham send somebody back from the dead to warn his living brothers. Because if they saw somebody from the dead, they would repent and believe. What did our Lord Jesus say? He said, no. They wouldn't even believe if somebody came back from the dead, Jesus said. If they haven't believed the word of God through Moses, they won't believe a fantastical miracle. This lady, Sapphira, had seen them all, had heard it all. She has reached peak hardening, and the Lord is pleased to use her to bless his elect church by setting the good and godly fear upon them. So, beloved, there's a great lesson there for us. Ananias and Sapphira, they may have thought, you know what, we will get right with God next year. We really need this money this year. The tax man cometh. Everybody's selling property. We could not only raise our esteem in the life of the church, but we can pocket some of this money. We'll get right with God later. They never got right with God. But God always gets right with men. Here's the lesson. We should never think that I will just spend one more month in sin I will just spend one more year in unbelief. I'll return to God in my older age. We should never think such a foolish thought. It assumes that you are in control of your heart. 
The scripture says the devil rules your heart, and the flesh rules your heart, and the world rules your heart. If you are not united to Christ by faith, you're ruled. You're a servant of someone. There's no way to live where you're not. Your heart rules you. You do not rule it. And even the idea that you will repent and come to Christ later in your life, and then you'll give up on sinning, even that kind of thinking is itself evidence that you are deceived already by your heart. Because your heart wants you to recline in the ease of that prospect of future salvation. Today is the day of salvation, Hebrews 4 says. The day that you hear come to Christ is the day to leave your sin behind and come to the Savior. But beloved, it is good news that we can come to the Savior. You can be twice as wicked as Ananias and Sapphira and bring that twice wickedness to the Savior. He has blood for it. He has atoning grace for it. You can be ten times as wicked as these two. You could have been the greatest religious charlatan that the Christian church has ever seen, and you can still come to Christ. When we look at our text today, we are, of course, struck by the death. And when we see a man and a woman die, we should immediately think about the fact that Jesus Christ died, was wrapped up and buried, just like Ananias and Sapphira, carried out to not corrupt the civilized folk. Our Lord Jesus died a death just like theirs. But he died not under the weight of his own sin. He died willingly, gladly, zealously under the weight of your sin. He was numbered among transgressors like Ananias and Sapphira so that you could flee the most gross transgressions, especially transgressions against the church of Jesus Christ. Come to him. He will receive you. Come today. He has called you today. Believe him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we confess that we are sometimes ashamed and embarrassed of passages like this. And we confess, Lord, it is, it is our fault, not yours. You have done all things well, and everything that needs to be given to your church has been given and will be given. Father, we pray that we would not take a sinful joy in the death of the wicked, But we pray also, Lord, that we would not take a worldly posture and try to keep people from seeing your judgments upon evildoers. Father, it is your judgment upon our own evildoing 
in the wrath you poured out on your Son that is our salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us. We praise you. He became a curse for us. We praise you. Father, I do pray for all who have heard your word this morning, that we would all be established and built up in our knowledge of what your church is, that we would sanctify our thoughts by your grace to believe that the church is what you have made it to be and not what we comfortably might like it to be. We are a holy and a heavenly people, and that we are indeed, Lord God, at our best with you when we are fighting against our sin and confessing it and walking before you openly and honestly and pleading with you for grace and mercy and the strength to walk in the newness of life, and you will not withhold such things from such beggars. Father, we also pray lastly this morning, if there are any in this room who, who know because of the testimony of your own spirit to their conscience, that they are deeply polluted with a pretend worship, that they are deeply polluted with a fake worship, that they gather before you regularly, but their heart and their mind is far from you, even though their lips are saying, Lord, Lord. Strike upon their heart, the very truth of your word, that they have not only violated the third commandment, but that they have disregarded in giving to you the honor that is due to you. And they have not even sought a humbling shelter at the cross. So, Father, I pray for all who have indeed received this testimony in their conscience, that you would grant them repentance, that they would not harden their heart under it, that even this very afternoon they would meet with you and deal with it, that they would confess the pollution of the worship of God and their pride and their coldness and their indifference toward it for so long, and that you, Father, would begin a work of renewal in their, in their worship of you in the public assembly of the saints, And that this renewal would be so grand and so wonderful, so rich, because you always give more than sin takes, that it would indeed impact their entire life. And that fruits that they have not seen would begin to hang upon them, and that many would be fed by it. To your praise, to your honor, to your glory. And it's a testimony that they can repent of the power and wisdom of your cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.